We're in Genesis chapter 49. We're almost done. I know. Year and a half. Mm hmm. <laughs> Gospel of John is what we'll be stepping into next, maybe or maybe not immediately. All right, so just to catch you up with where we are, Jacob is near death, the patriarch of the family, and uh, it would seem that all his sons were called to him because he was dying. And of course, Joseph and his two sons arrived first, which is what we went over last Sunday, and Jacob blessed Joseph by blessing his two sons, and now the rest of Joseph's brothers are arriving, and Jacob's going to bless them. At least that's, that's what it says in my Bible. It says, Jacob blesses his sons. I just want to bring this out, though. This is really more of a prophetic word, more of a prophecy concerning his 12 sons. It has future implications as well as present implications for each of his, of his 12 sons. And what this is, is, is I mean, basically, this is the, the Holy Spirit upon Jacob. So basically, God speaking through him. And with that, he's giving a word, a prophecy, a blessing to his sons and to even to their future offspring. Right? This and and how do we know this is prophecy? Because everything he says here comes true. Everything he says here comes true. Now again, it says Jacob blesses his sons, and I want to bring that out because uh, Jacob actually never uses the word blessing or bless any time in this until he gets to Joseph. And then he says that word like five or six times to Joseph specifically, right? And then in verse 28, Moses is the one who said that Jacob blessed his sons, each with the blessing suitable to him. But I want you to understand something about blessing, at least in the Hebrew word, at least in the word that's used here, is that like a lot of Hebrew words, it's a double-sided coin, meaning that it can have two different meanings depending on the context in which it's used. And sometimes those meanings can be uh, the exact opposite of each other. So the word that's used here for blessing can also mean curse. It can, it can also mean uh, praise. And at the same time, it can also mean blaspheme. That's the word that's being used for blessing right here. Because when we think of blessing, we often think of God's favor. We think of dedication or consecrate, uh, consecration or maybe uh, commendation. He's going to commend his sons. He's going to pass on um, their, in a sense, their birthright, bless them in the name of the Lord, which he's doing, and commend them. But not all of his sons are commended. It's not, it's not a normal blessing in the way that we think of blessings. Uh, some are commended. <laughs> some... Uh, are condemned, in a sense. It's kind of like the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. Jesus usually had a word of commendation for the church, and he also had a word of condemnation sometimes for the church as well. But in that, that was a blessing to the church. So Jacob is blessing his sons here in chapter 49, but as we read through these blessings and as we walk through them son by son, just keep that in mind 
you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's a strange blessing. That's not how I look at blessings. So let's go through it. Chapter 49, we're going to read verses 1 through 28. It says, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I might tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. When he says in days to come, in the Hebrew that means um, in the uh, last days. Uh, it's a future thing. He's, he's talking about their future. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. And so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Riders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that your word just be spoke to us, that your spirit just speak it to us, and you just open our hearts, Lord, to what you want us to hear from it, and what you want us to teach it, to teach us from it, and Lord, and 
how we can apply this, even this, even these blessings and this word of prophecy from Jacob to his sons, even what we can take from this that we can apply to our own lives. So we thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So you can see as we read through it that this isn't your normal blessing. I mean, when you think of blessing and you think of previous blessings you may have read through, um, this is more of a prophetic statement concerning his sons because as he said, right as he started the chapter, right, he said that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. And that, like I said, in translated, that means the last days. So that was a hint towards the future application of these prophetic statements that Jacob is giving his sons. So let's take a look. We're going to walk through this son by son for the most part. Some of them are lumped together. Some of them are really short. Some of them are longer. And it's interesting, just for a study, if you ever wanted to do this, just say this up front. Look at this, Jacob blessing his sons here right before he passes away. And then go into Deuteronomy and compare it to the blessing to the tribe of Israel that Moses does. One of the last things Moses does as well is blesses the tribes of Israel and then compare them. Compare the two blessings, see what's the same, see what's changed slightly. Both are words of God to the tribes of Israel. It's very interesting to compare the two. So he starts with Reuben, and Reuben, of course, is the firstborn. So it would make sense that he would start with Reuben. He says, Reuben is my might and the first fruits of my strength. He's preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And this was actually a very common Hebrew phrase that they would use to describe the firstborn son. Preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. If he was commending his son for anything, this is the commendation right here. Right? My might and the first fruits of my strength. Preeminent. But then he says, you're unstable. You're unstable as water. Right? So he says, you shall not have preeminence. And we already know from the blessings that Jacob gave to Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, that Reuben basically has lost his right that would be expected to, because he was the firstborn. And that tells us right here why. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He says, he went up to my couch. And if you remember, because you've got to rewind back to remember when this happened, it was back in Genesis 35. And if you remember, they were coming back. Jacob was bringing his whole family back to the land of Canaan. And Rachel, or, yeah, um, Rachel was pregnant with Benjamin. And when she gave birth to Benjamin, she died, if you remember. This was around the time they were getting near Bethlehem or near that area. And it said right after that, in Genesis 35:22, this one sentence, it says, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. And then it just moves on, and the story continues on, and you're like, okay, why did they throw that right there in the middle of the story that just tell us that what's happened? Well, they, they tell you that back then, so now you can see why Reuben has lost his preeminence, right? Because of sexual immor- immorality. And what's interesting about it is that, and, we're, and really this applies to the first three sons here, um, is that 
nothing else is mentioned. I mean, we're in chapter 49. That was chapter 35. Nothing else is mentioned this entire time. And we're what? How many years past? 40 some odd years or something like that? That we've gone on since, since that time. Maybe not that exactly. But it's been a long time and nothing else has been mentioned of it. And you kind of think, well, you know, these things, they get brushed under the rug. They get forgotten. Um, you know, bygones, bygones. Maybe it's been put behind them. No, it hasn't. Right? Jacob's just waiting for the right time. To, in a sense, bring his judgment down on his son for their sins. Now, had he forgiven Reuben? Probably. More than likely he had. But it didn't affect this word from God. Because remember, this is a word from God. A prophetic statement concerning Reuben. And Reuben might have thought, well, you know, all that's behind me now. But God says, well, actually, it's affected your birthright. Right? You might have thought it was something of the past, but... No, here's the actual judgment for it. You lose your preeminence. You lose, in a sense, your firstborn status because of it. Right? We're not going to kill you. We're not going to hang you up. We're not going to you know, do anything serious like that. We're not kicking you out of the family and sending you away. You're still one of my sons, and you're one of the tribes of Israel, but you will no longer have the preeminence you should have had being the firstborn because of your sin. So he loses his birthright. And how that played out in the future for Reuben and for the tribe of Reuben is just this. They never furnished a leader. Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, never furnished a leader of any kind. Right? There was no prophet. There was no judge. There was no king. In all of Israel, Reuben never furnished any of those. Matter of fact, the tribe of Reuben won't even cross over the Jordan. You can see that like in Numbers 32. And during the wars with the Canaanites, the tribe of Reuben, you know, during the days of Deborah, they didn't even um, answer the call to arms. They wouldn't even come and help fight with the other tribes. Because usually the firstborn was supposed to be the spiritual and the social leader of the clan, right? The, the rights of, the, of blessing, priesthood, ruling authority, and, and all that, some of that sometimes was all dumped on the firstborn. But in this case, what... Jacob's going to do and what actually the Lord is doing is he's dividing these between the sons rather than centralizing all of these in one son. So the tribe of Reuben never excelled in anything. Matter of fact, they're an example of what Jesus says in Matthew 19.30, which is many who are first will be last and the last first. Reuben was first but will be last. And then Jacob gets on to Simeon and Levi. And he puts them both together. And you might remember why. It has to do with Genesis 34 and and Jacob's daughter being defiled. It was Simeon and Levi who went in and killed all the men. So he puts both of them together. It says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. I mean, think about that for just one second, what he's saying right here. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. That's, that's like an ouch. That's an ouch there. Basically, Jacob's saying, I don't really want to hang out with them. I don't want to be with my two sons, Simeon and Levi, because of what they've done. Right? My soul won't enter their counsel. My glory will not be united with them. 
because of their sin. Again, because of their sin. Right? It says that their swords, their weapons of violence or their, are their swords. And that phrase in the Hebrew, it, it literally it means their instruments of cruelty is their habitation. And this is the only time that this, there's this word here that's used in the Hebrew. And they don't honestly know what it means, but basically what they're saying is, is that Simeon and Levi lived by the sword. And the Bible tells us if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So they were kind of a violent, aggressive people. Now, this just shows that you will have consequences that you carry with you because of your sins that you will face you know, years later. Your sin always carries consequences. And this is their consequence here, is this blessing. And they're being blessed, basically they're being condemned because of the evil deed that they did, because of their fierce anger and their cruel wrath. And what's going to happen to them? He says, I will divide them in Jacob and I will scatter them in Israel. And this is pretty much what happened to at least Simeon. Levi is a little different story, right? But at least Simeon. Simeon was pretty much assimilated by the tribe of Judah, Right. Or it was scattered you know, around the nation of Israel. Matter of fact, when you go through like numbers and you look at the censuses, right, you have different censuses of Israel, like the numbers where they count the tribes and how many people are in the tribes as you go through. Um, Simeon became small when they were wandering in the wilderness and they weren't crossing over the Jordan to go into the promised land. Uh, Simeon's tribe shrunk and it shrunk and it shrunk, right? I mean, they left Egypt, the third largest tribe, and some 35 years later or whatever, they were the, uh, they were the smallest tribe of all the 12 tribes. And they had, so they just shrunk. And after the time of King Asa, which is like in Second Chronicles or whatever, it's, you know, some, you know, uh, around 860 to 960 BC, so some 700 years from now, basically, somewhere in that time frame, um, they're never heard of, really, Simeon's never really heard of again. So Simeon was dispersed and scattered. Now, Levi, not so much, right? Because now the, Levi, the Levites never received an inheritance of their own land. That is true. They were scattered amongst the cities of the other tribes. But they were utilized, and this is where you see a difference, especially when you compare this blessing here from Jacob to the blessing Moses does in Deuteronomy. Uh, as far as the Levite goes, you see a little bit of difference in the change of attitude towards the Levites. But the tribe of Levi, yeah, they never had their own land. Yes, they were scattered, just like is prophesied right here. They, because they became utilized as a priestly tribe among the Israelites. And, and they were scattered as a blessing. Their scattering was a blessing to them. It was a blessing to the whole nation of Israel. Right? Yes, yeah, so they received no land, but the Lord was their inheritance. The Lord was their inheritance. And you remember Moses and Aaron from the tribe of Levi, right? So yes, both Simeon and Levi were scattered and dispersed. 
But Levi was scattered as a blessing. Simeon, in a sense, as a curse. There's a quote by Spurgeon that says, happy is the man who, though he begins with a dark shadow resting upon him, which is what you could say about Levi right here, so, lie, so lives as to turn even that shadow into a bright sunlight. Levi gained a blessing at the hands of Moses, one of the richest blessings of any of the tribes. So Levi, though scattered, became a blessing to the entire nation because of the Levitical tribe. And you never know. I mean, I'm sure Levi, at the time that he heard this, really didn't understand exactly how it was going to play out. But years later, it turned out to be a blessing for the entire nation. And that's a picture of God's grace. Right? That's a picture of God's grace. Which is why when God gives you words like this, when God, in a sense, passes on down prophetic words or blessings to your life and you kind of look at them and you're like, well, that's kind of harsh. There's a reason to pay attention to it. Because you never know what God intends to do with that. I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to disperse you. I'm going to put you across the land. You're like, I don't really want to do that. Why don't you give me my, my I'll take one acre right? <laughs> we'll take one acre or whatever. And he's like, no, I'm not going to give you anything. But then as it turns out, they were a blessing for everybody. You never know what the Lord's going to do. And then he gets to Judah. And this is very interesting. There's a lot in this one. This is one of the longer quote unquote blessings, right? Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. Or in some of your translations might say, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Right? Judah is a young lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him? This is prophetic word about Judah is, a, is really more of pointing towards the kingly reign of Judah. Right? Because the tribe of Judah took prominent reign when David became king. Some 640 years later or whenever that happens. Right? And from that point, never really let it up. Okay, and where, what tribe is Jesus from? Judah, right? I mean, even Daniel was from the tribe of Judah, right? right? Now, what it says here in verse 10, it says, the scepter, or the ruler's staff, yeah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, or as I said, some of your translations might say, until... Shiloh comes. Now first, this is the first use of the word scepter, which means lawgiver in the Hebrew. It's, it's a reference to Judah's, uh, in a sense, his authority. That the, they're a kingly tribe. The kings of Israel are going to be coming from Judah. And it says that they shall keep that, basically. When it says that the ruler's staff or the scepter won't depart from them, it means that they're going to rule as king until a certain point. My Bible translates it until tribute comes to him, but it's really the word in the Hebrew is Shiloh. Right? The word for tribute is Shiloh. So until Shiloh comes. 
So the ruler's staff will depart from Judah when Shiloh comes. So we have to understand that the ruler's staff, in a sense, at least in a physical sense, as far as worldly sense is concerned, has departed Okay, from Judah. So when did it depart? Yeah, when Jesus came. Right? It, it departed basically in what? AD 70 when the Romans came in and destroyed the temple and took, took over Jerusalem. They say it's taught that at that time because of the fact that the Jews had rejected Christ and didn't accept him as the Messiah, um, at that time there were rabbis wandering around Jerusalem just in a sense muttering to themselves after the temple was destroyed. The staff has departed but we did not see Shiloh. Where is the Messiah? The staff has departed, but where is the Messiah? We did not see the Messiah. Because it says that it will not depart until Shiloh has come. Right? Now, Shiloh is a word that they, they don't truly understand exactly what it means. This specific word, you can go through, there's more than one word for Shiloh because it's also a place. But it's not the same Hebrew root as this one. This one is the only use of this word in, in the Old Testament. So... They do, and they don't 100% know what it means. But they think it possibly means he whose it is or that which belongs to him or whose right it is. And it was often a Hebrew word used for the Messiah. <clears throat> they say it could, it could come or be related to the word shalom, which means peace or tranquility. It could mean to be at ease. And if we remember... Right? Jesus, besides being the lion, the lion from the tribe of Judah, was also the Prince of Peace. Right? That's what Isaiah 9-6 prophesied, that the coming Messiah shall be called the Prince of Peace. So when Jesus came, it's also Micah, Micah 5-2, referring to the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, right? How it would be peaceful to Israel. So Jesus fulfilled that entire prophecy when he came. That's when Shiloh came, when Jesus was there. But here's the other thing that you need to know about this, because it's also a future prophetic statement concerning Jesus' reign in Israel. Because we know that Shiloh is Jesus, and the ruler's staff has been taken away, and it's not there, though technically Jesus is still, right, king and ruler, even if he's not physically there. But he was returning, of course, right? The second coming, the millennial reign of Christ. He is going to be there, and the Bible tells us that he will not return until Israel calls for him, or until they ask him to come back. Okay? They missed him the first time. They rejected him. Do you remember at the triumphal entry when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey what it is that everyone shouted? Right? Yeah, Hosanna. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? That, you know, I'm not going to get into too deep of theology here, but that's basically Jesus' first coming. Right? When he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Well, he's going to be coming back into Jerusalem. 
But he's not going to come until they say that same thing. Until they basically say that same thing. Until they shout that same phrase. And Jesus even told him that. Right? Jesus told him that. And I guess I forgot to write the verse down. But he said, uh, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he's basically telling them, I won't be back until you call for me, until you need me. And the second part of this word that he's giving here to Judah, yeah, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. That there is a picture of how, um, what would be the word that you would use? How great it's going to be in Israel at that time because you don't tie your donkey up to, right, a vine. You don't tie your foal up to a vine like that. You only do that if there's an abundance of things like this. That means it's going to be abundantly rich at the time that he ties his foal up. And we know that the time of the millennial reign is going to be a time of peace on earth that we've never experienced when Jesus is actually reigning from Jerusalem. But it also says that he washed his garments in wine and the vesture in the blood of the grapes. And, and that's a strange phrase, but when you look at how Jesus describes it, how his second coming is described in the book of Revelation, right? It, it tells you that his clothes is, is a robe dipped in blood. And it's, the imagery is very similar. You have this garment that has been washed in wine and the vesture in the blood of the grapes. It's just a picture of the second coming of the Lord. It's a picture of the second coming of the Lord. The millennial reign. Jesus is going to return. He told them he would return when they call for him. And, but at the same time, who's going to come with him? Besides us, besides the church, because the church is going to rule and reign with Jesus during the millennial reign. We're going to return with him. That, that picture in Revelation that, that talks about um, the armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen and white and pure were following them on white horses, right? They say, well, that's, that could be the church coming back with him. We're raptured up with him. We go to the, uh, to the wedding feast. We come back with him on the second coming. We have a job to do. During that thousand-year reign, we're going to have a job to do, ruling and reigning with Christ. He, all uh, government will be on his shoulders. We're n- we don't have the authority that he has, but we'll be with him. But there's also another person who's going to be there. And Jeremiah 30, verses 8 and 9 tells us, and it shall come to pass in that, that, that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds. And the foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. This is a reference to Israel. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for him. So along with all those who who were taken at the rapture and raised from the dead. One of them is going to be David, and David's going to come back as well. And as Jesus rules from the throne, from the line of Judah, King David will be there with him as well. And all that's wrapped up in this little prophetic statement here to Judah. It's interesting is, is that it has a... He's speaking to Judah in the present. He's telling him this in person, but it also has this future application that Judah's never going to live to see in that sense. 
He's not going to see the coming of Jesus. He's not going to see the second coming in, the, in, in that way. Well, he actually might, right? He might, be, he might be there in the group with all of us as well. So, you know, but it's a very interesting picture. And it's been fulfilled. And it's going to be fulfilled even more when Jesus returns, right? So this prophetic word to Judah is about the reign of Jesus, and it's about the future king during his millennium reign and basically all of eternity. Right? Jesus will rule and him alone for all of eternity. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. And then from Judah he goes to Zebulon and Issachar. Now Zebulon, he just says, shall dwell at the shore of the sea and he shall become a haven for ships and his borders shall be at Sidon. And Issachar, he says, is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that the resting place was good and the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. There's actually not a lot said about Zebulon and Issachar, at least not in the book of Genesis. Right? We're told that Zebulon shall be a haven for ships. Right? His, uh, the, the northern border of Zebulon would be the great seaport of uh, Sidon. The tribe of Zebulon was noted for their faithfulness to David, for King David, they, they supplied the largest number of soldiers to David's army of any single tribe. Um, I think 50,000 went out to battle. They were an expert in war and all weapons of war. First uh, Chronicles tells us that they were stout-hearted men who could keep ranks. And Joshua tells us that Zebulon's land was up towards the sea and it reached the river that's before Jokneam. So that's a lot of good words for Zebulon. Now, Issachar, he says, was a strong donkey lying down. Which means he was strong, but he was lazy. And eventually what happens is, because of the fact that he's lazy, was he was pressed into servitude. He be, the tribe of Issachar, for the most part, became slaves. See, historically, Issachar had rich lands, they had crops, but because of their lands and their crops... And because of their size of the tribe, they were often attacked and they were targets of oppressive foreign armies and these foreign armies often conquered them and put them into servitude. Thus Issachar pretty much became a band of slaves. That's how that works out historically. Just as Jacob says. Now, then he gets into Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. And Dan is the real interesting one as well. Now they're not listed chronologically as far as birth is concerned, but these are the sons of the handmaids. And it tells us that Dan shall judge his people, but he shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. Right? He shall judge his people, but he's going to be a serpent or a snake in the path. Now, Dan was a small tribe, uh, but yet they were a dangerous adversary. They protected the northern boundary. But they also did things like introduce idolatry uh, into Israel, um, set up a golden calf. Uh, and Dan later became a center of idol worship in Israel, as you can see in the book of Amos. But because of this reference to the serpent, many people think that this re refers to the idea that the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. And this comes from Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. 
It says, we looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. And then it says, the snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. And at the sound of the neighing of their stallions, the whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. And so with verses like that and descriptions that we have throughout the Bible of the Antichrist, um, and this verse right here that Jacob tells Dan, many people think that the Antichrist is going to come from the tribe of Dan. One thing you'll notice is that when you get to Revelation chapter 7 and you look at the 144,000, what's one of the tribes that's not mentioned? Dan. Dan's not in the list. Right? Dan's not in the list. Now, you match that up with what Jacob says next, and it points an interesting picture. Because right here, sort of in the middle of his blessings, in the middle of this prophetic word that he's giving his sons, you know, basically between the seventh and eighth son, you know, almost right in the middle of what he's talking about, he just states this one thing, which is not directed to any one son in particular, it's just a statement. It's the first use of the word salvation in the Bible. Verse 18, he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. It's very interesting that Jacob, just in the middle of blessing his sons, of passing these prophetic words on that, that, that the Lord has for him to pass on to his sons, that right in the middle of this, he just basically blurts out, you could say, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Almost as if Jacob, one, saw a picture in the midst of that, remember he's dying. He actually almost dies when, you know, as soon as he finishes. I mean, if we go with what it says here, pretty much right after he finishes blessing his sons, he draws his last breath and, and dies. But it's possible he saw right in the middle of this. God, heaven, whatever, eternity. However you want to think of it, he saw a picture of salvation. And right in the middle of blessing his sons, he goes, that's what I've been longing for. Now, it's also an interesting picture because it comes right after Dan. And if, and if the Antichrist is to come from the tribe of Dan, then one of the interesting things about it is, is that this is what Israel is going to be saying in the midst of the tribulation. Right in the midst of the tribulation, they're going to be saying, you know, Lord, save us. I want your, where's our salvation, right? So it's an interesting statement right here in the middle of this. So he blurts it out right after he, Dan. And they are going to, they're going to say, blessed he is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're going to call upon God and God is going to answer them. But then he gets into Gad Oh, wait a minute. Before I move on, I forgot. That phrase is very important for another reason. Because it's only three words in the Hebrew. That whole sentence is only three words in the Hebrew. And the words are this. And this is probably one of the most important things. I almost, almost forgot it entirely. He said, the three words are this. Yeshua, Gava, Yehovah. Those are the three Hebrew words that that make up that entire sentence of verse 18, right? Yeshua, Gava, Yehovah. In the Hebrew, Yeshua is the word for Jesus. That's where we get Jesus in the Greek, is Yeshua in the Hebrew. 
Yehovah, of course, is God. So right here in the middle of this, what does Jacob say? He says, Jesus, God. I'm not even sure he understood the implications of what he was saying. Because that is where salvation is found. In Jesus. It's a very incredible statement in the middle of this. Probably the most incredible statement in the whole thing. And I didn't want to pass that up. I almost forgot it. Slap me. Gad. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Gad's name means troops, by the way. His realm was on the east of Jordan, on the edge of the kingdom of the Ammonites, and he was especially open to attack. Uh, and he got attacked quite a bit. Jeremiah 49.1, for example, foreign armies came and attacked. But they were able to fight him off. And the, the tribe of Gad supplied many troops for David. So they were a good fighting tribe. And it said that. That's what it says right there in verse 19. Now Asher, Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. Asher is the guy you wanted to know. You wanted a good treat. You wanted some, you know, something fun to eat. You, you need to know Asher because Asher, he had all the rich food and the royal delicacies. He must have been a good baker. Maybe he created the bagel. Asher, however, I mean, his lot felt was on the northern seacoast, was north of Mount Carmel. But they didn't hold the land, and the tribe eventually becomes in, insignificant. Mo and Moses, when he's prophesying about Asher later in Deuteronomy chapter 33, he says, uh, Asher is most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. So it's still that same idea about the luxuries. And, and uh, that, that Asher was good enough to bring not only something that was a necessity, but he also had the luxuries. Now it says, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns, which means also that he gives beautiful words. So he's very eloquent in his speech. And the descendants of Naphtali would be known for swiftness as warriors, as like fleet of foot, like, you know, and as composers of literature and, and songs and poems and things like that. Matter of fact, Judges chapter 5, the victory song written by Deborah and, and Barak, uh, a descendant, you know, Barak was a descendant of Naphtali, and they wrote that song after they won the battle of Canaanites, against the Canaanites. Naphtali's land was in a key portion near the Sea of Galilee, and Naphtali and uh, Zebulon, the area that they had near each other is the area where Jesus did most of his, a lot of his ministry. And you can see that in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. It says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, referring to Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali. So Capernaum was in that area of Zebulon and Naphtali. Now one of the interesting things, of course, is that Jesus also has been said that he spoke beautiful words. So that's very interesting that that's referred to for Naphtali. 
And then he ends with Joseph and Benjamin. Now Joseph, this isn't so much a blessing because he already blessed Joseph through his sons. But he's really just giving the counting of his life and pointing out to Joseph who was involved and instrumental in everything that Joseph did. Reminding Joseph that God was with him. That's basically what he's doing, right? I mean, look at this picture. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him. They shot at him. They harassed him severely. Yet his bow remains unmoved. His arms were made, a, were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. That's more what we think of when we think of blessings. And that was given to Joseph. And the idea of what Jacob is telling Joseph is he's just reminding them that God's hands were on him his entire life. Right? God gave him strength. God gave him skill. God was there when Joseph didn't even know it. Right? Joseph was blessed in his posterity. His tribes, his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who have now been basically put adopted by Jacob into the, into the sons, and they're basically now one and two as far as Jacob is concerned. They were some of the most populous tribes. Right? And, and through his sons is how he received his material blessings, in a sense, the double portion aspect of his inheritance that normally would be given to the firstborn, but was given to Joseph. But in here, Jacob also gives this great picture of God. And this is great because what Jacob is testifying to is how personal of a relationship that he has with God. That he understands who God is in these last moments of his life. God's real, and he knows it. He says, he calls him the mighty one of Jacob. He calls him the shepherd. He calls him the stone of Israel. He tells Joseph that he is the God of your father and that he is the almighty. Right? Jacob says here that the blessings of your father, so, the, so his blessings are mighty beyond the blessings of his parents. Right? Jacob realizes his blessings have been greater than his ancestors' blessings, that God has blessed him greatly. It's a fantastic picture that speaks into, it's a testimony, basically, to the relationship that Jacob has with God. Because we all start in these times, and if we, if we go back, remember when we first met Jacob as he was running away from Esau, and when he talked about God, before it became his God, before he had that relationship, it was the God of his fathers. And often we get into those, we know of God because we were taught about God by our parents. We were taught about God by our grandparents. We grew up in a family that was religious and, and talked about God. We know of God, but it was, the, it was our parents' God. It was our grandparents' God. It was the God that they talked about. It was never personal. We never, never became our God. But that changed for Jacob as he grew in his relationship with the Lord, as the Lord continued to provide for him and protect him and bring him through all these trials and everything that he went through. 
And, and now at the end of his life, he's blessing Joseph and it, reminding him of, of how God worked in his life and then also testifying to how great God was in his life. God is mighty. He's everlasting. He's a shepherd. He shepherded me. Right? He's the stone of Israel, which means like he's the rock right? upon which I built. He's a mighty, mighty God. And it just shows how his relationship has grown. In this, we see that only, really, only physical blessings have been promised to Joseph. Judah received sort of the spiritual and the physical. Joseph and Judah would become the prominent tribes of Israel. And then he ends with this one note. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. That's a weird prophecy for a beloved son. I mean, Benjamin was a beloved son of Jacob's. But this tribe would grow up to have a reputation for fierceness. They would, the cruelty of the tribe can be seen in Judges 19 and 20, for example. If you remember, King Saul is from Benjamin, as well as the Apostle Paul from the tribe of Benjamin. And you think about uh, their character and what they did, Apostle Paul, before he became the Apostle Paul. Back when he was also known as Saul. And hunting down and Christians, right? So we see that picture of their cruelty and their and their fierceness. So when he says Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, you can see that play out. And he says in verse twenty eight, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. And you're probably thinking, that's all nice and fine. <laughs> what does that have to do with me? I'm not part of the 12 tribes of Israel. I think there's, we see something here that's very important for us to take with us. And it has to do with the fact that what Jacob is doing is, is he's passing on the word of God to his sons. He's giving them a word from the Lord. We could call it a prophetic word. He's given them a word from the Lord. And in that, he's, he's, he's given them a couple of things. One, he's showing, hey, listen, the Lord is your salvation. It says that right in verse 18. He gives them a picture of his relationship with the Lord. Listen, the Lord is a mighty one. He's, he's, he's my God. He's the stone of Israel. He's a shepherd. But from that, what we can do is this. Remember this. God has a word for you too. And that word is Jesus. Right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is the word. Right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Sneak preak in the gospel of John. You know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, as it tells us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 tells us that long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by who? By his son, Jesus. 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. See, God's word testifies to who Jesus is. God's word testifies to who God is. Jesus is God, the Almighty, the great shepherd, our rock, a mighty God. That's Jesus. And we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as it tells us in Ephesians 1.3. So God's word is a blessing in our lives. God's word is a blessing in our lives. God's prophetic word is a blessing to our lives. We are blessed in Jesus. And these blessings are eternal. They're not just for right here and now. They're eternal. Matter of fact, right, they're, they're prophetic. They speak into the future. God's word speaks into the future. It's for you to grow from. It's for you to learn from. It's for you to be blessed by. It's for you to have hope, to find your hope in. But also, it can look into your past too. Because once you grow in God's word and you've seen his faithfulness and, and you've, you've seen his grace and you've seen his mercy in you and he's continued to work that out through your lives and you can look back on your life now, you can look back and rewind, not that you do, but you can look and say, wow, God was working back there and I, I didn't even know it. God drew me to him and, and was working in my life back in the times when I didn't even really know who God was when I didn't have a relationship with him like I do now, I can see it now. So when we have God's word in our lives, we have something that's applying, that's applicable to us right now for the here and now, for today, as well as for tomorrow and for the future. But we can also look back and see what God has done in the past. So God's word is a blessing in our lives in so many different ways. Jacob's sons received this word, this blessing, and hopefully... Hopefully, they remembered this word, and then they passed this word down to their sons who passed it down to their sons, and, right? They passed down this word, a blessing, this prophetic snapshot into the future for them to live by and for them to apply to their lives. And it's the same for us. God's word is for the here and now. It's for the future. His word lets us see into the future so that we can have hope. You want to know what's going on in the world today? You want to know how things are going to play out? It tells you right here in God's word. And in that, we have hope because we know how things play out. God's word will tell us exactly how it's going to do it, right? As we get closer to the day of Christ's return, whether that be the rapture for us or for some people, that's going to be the second coming. It's all right here. God's word is the truth. It's the truth. It's never going to return void. It's never going to fail. So if we were in Jesus, then we have the Holy Spirit in our lives and he speaks into our lives and he guides us and the Holy Spirit guides us in the way of truth and he does it through God's word. As we live out our days through God's word, we see this unfold. Right? When we, we can look back and we say, you know, there was a time when I understood things a little. Maybe they didn't make sense to me. But now as I've grown, I, I, I've grown more in the Lord, I have a better grasp on things. I, have a, I understand things in a deeper way. I understand things in a more significant way. Right? And then we treasure that more. And as life goes on, we see things more clearly because we're seeing things with the wisdom and the knowledge of God's word. Hopefully, that's what we're doing. The Bible said that his word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Assuming we follow it, that is. Right? Assuming we listen to it. Assuming we take it for what it is, the word of God, and apply it in all that we do. Assuming that we do that. 
assuming that we use God's word as the plumb line by which we judge all of the words to see how they line up. Then we can live our lives as a testament to the true and living God, and through the blessings that we've received, we can bless others. Jacob looked back on his life, and he saw that the blessings that he received were greater than the blessings of his father's. And he was passing those blessings on to his son, his sons. And he wanted them to know who God was. He wanted them to know that God's reign was going to be eternal. He wanted them to know that, that, there, that the Messiah was going to come. He wanted them to know where salvation came from. He passed that on down to them. He blessed them in that way. And we can bless others in that way too. Bless, not curse. It says the tongue does both. <laughs> we got to watch our tongue in those situations. But we have God's word, and in that we have a blessed hope. We have our salvation, we have Jesus. Right? It tells us in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's where our salvation is. We can be like Jacob, who just in the middle of describing all this stuff that's going on, can just say, Jesus, God. I wait for you, right? I long for your salvation, Lord. So let's do that. Let's just continue to bless people with Jesus through our testimony and through the way God has worked through our lives. But God really wants you to know that in his word, your faith is not misplaced. He's faithful and he's coming back to gather you unto himself, right? Rest in that.